as well introduce Adam while I'm here. So Adam, why don't we give him a warm welcome. Brilliant. Well, look, what um, preaching series are we going through at the moment? Origins. Absolutely, Origins. Now, look, as part of our preaching series on Origins, the thing is, we don't only want to look at the way things begin, which kind of, you know, the name Origins sort of implies. We also want to know how things end up. So, really, the series ought to be called sort of Beginning and Ends. But that didn't count quite as good as Origins, so we stuck with Origins. But we do also want to see... How do things biblically end? We need to know that, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah we do. So um, what that means, if we're going to look at how things end, it means that we need to look at at least elements of the book of Revelation. And uh, it is the last book of the Bible. It is the final word that came before God then said, right, that's it, the scriptures are complete. The, the canon, as it's called, the canon of scripture is now shut. And so it's very important, isn't it? Because this is the last uh, book. However, who here has read Revelation? Who here would say you read it regularly? One, two, yes, that doesn't surprise me at all. Because if you've ever looked at the book of Revelation, it's really weird, isn't it? I mean, it's bizarre. It's truly a bizarre uh, book, uh, particularly on first reading, and then actually on second, third, and fourth reading, it doesn't get any less bizarre. Yeah. And actually, there were some great figures of the past who absolutely hated this book, including, would you believe, Martin Luther and John Calvin. These greats, really, of the past did not like this book at all. And I can't blame them, because it has quite a flow, doesn't it, of extraordinary and weird images really from about chapter 6 all the way through to about 19, you're kind of thinking, what on earth is going on? So quite early on in this book, you are taken, John has this vision, and we are taken, we are allowed to go through this door, and he says, come and have a peer with me into the throne room of heaven. And you're looking into heaven, and it's odd. I mean, it's glorious, but it's really, really odd. You, you, you see... You see something of God, but then you see this sort of strange um, uh, emerald rainbow around him, and then there are lampstands, and there are, you're thinking, what is this? And then at one point, you come across four creatures that have sort of characteristics of animals, but it says they've got eyes all over them. And you're thinking, what on earth is this? This is very weird indeed. And then you move forward a few chapters and you see, John sees rather, a beast emerging from the sea. And this beast has seven heads and ten horns. And you're thinking, well, this is not normal. Certainly not normal in my house. Very, very weird. And then we move on a bit further and there's someone called the great prostitute. And then after that you get seven bowls of God's wrath. That would beat ready break every time. A, a bowl of God's wrath. And these bowls are poured out. And as that happens, uh, all sorts of things happen. And then we also see a scroll. One of these. A scroll with these seals on it. Except there are seven seals. And as Jesus comes along and opens each one of these, these seals, all sorts of things happen. Judgments happen. Disasters occur. 
And then at another point, you've got horses. I mean, why is this? You've got horses, four horses, different colours. One's bright red, one is black, one is white, one is pale. Commonly known as the four horses of the apocalypse. And then they pop up and all sorts of disasters occur. I mean, you're thinking, what is this? And then there's another scroll that appears. And then John has to take this little scroll and eat it. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> and, you, and then it upsets his stomach. And you think... <laughs> This is not a regular book at all. This is very bizarre. And so all these images, you read it in one hit, these images come at you one after another after another. But it's not just images, it's numbers as well. All sorts of numbers in there that clearly mean you get seven in particular. Uh, the, John, the, the writer of um, this book, clearly loves seven. You get seven bulls, seven seals, seven angels, seven spirits, seven lampstands, and you kind of realise, hang on, there's symbolism in this. Because actually the, the, the number seven, biblically, is about perfection or completion. So you kind of begin to have to readjust yourself to realise these numbers probably aren't literal, they're symbolic. They mean something. So you've got numbers, colours, images, all of which mean something. And this, there's another level of complexity to the book of Revelation because there are so many references to other books of the Bible. So Genesis and Exodus, Daniel chapter 7, Ezekiel, um, uh, Zechariah, all sorts of other books. Images from those books and themes from those books are, are worked into the book of Revelation. So you've got to have a decent working knowledge, really, of the entire Old Testament uh, to be able to get to grips with this. It's a highly, highly symbolic book. And as a result of that, it can be very, very confusing. Really deeply, deeply confusing. In fact, I don't think there's more controversy about this book than any other book in the New Testament, and probably the whole Bible. And you, if you read it, you will know why. It is like a high sensory experience. If you start at the beginning and read through to the end, it's a bit like you are watching a movie trailer. So you're watching for a high octane film, you know, or a, one of those really dystopian, weird films. And uh, you're watching, it's like this four minute thing, and then all these images are sort of flashing at you. And uh, you, at one point you think, that's terrifying, and then it's wonderful, and then you think, oh, I understand that bit, and then there's a whole big chunk you think, oh, what is this about? It kind of transports you firmly into another dimension, this book. Absolutely. Yet, it's not made up fantasy. That's what we're used to when we watch a movie trailer. Somebody's had an idea and they've created this. This is the Word of God. It carries weight because it's the Word of God. And it's reality as God sees it. Because he, this book starts with God saying to John, come, let me show you what must soon happen. So you know this is the Word of God. And you might read it and you think, well, I might not understand it, but I just know that this matters. That's kind of how it leaves you. And actually there's extra weight, I think, particularly to this book, because it starts in the beginning with a promise of a blessing. And it says, if you read this book out loud, God will bless you. And then right at the end it says, oh, by the way, if you try and change any of the words of this book, 
you will be cursed with some of the plagues listed in this book. So you kind of think, crumbs, what I'm dealing with? There's the promise of blessing and cursing over this one book. I mean, I don't think any other book of the Bible carries this sort of weight. So you kind of don't read it lightly, this book. I can remember, actually, when I uh, was fairly new, newly a Christian 30 years ago, I can remember reading aspects of the uh, book of Revelation, and it terrified me. I just thought, I do not understand this book at all. It looks really scary. And to be honest, I put it down. I've used bits of the, the be beginning of Revelation and the end, but until a few weeks ago, I I'm ashamed to admit, I have never really studied it with the kind of depth that I should have. And it was a few weeks ago, I just got all the commentaries out, started to read it, started to study it, and started to look at it. And I bet there are a number of you who are like that. You've done your duty by it, because it's the Bible, so you've read it and then thought, right, I've done that. I'm going to stick to other books of the Bible that I understand more, that make more sense and that are simpler. I mean, let's be honest, there are enough challenges in the rest of the Bible without embracing Revelation as well. But because we're looking at the origin series, we want to find out how things are going to end. So that means we've got no option. We are going to have to take a dive into the book of Revelation. So my job today is to try and give you an overview. That's what I've been asked to do. Give an overview of the book so that in the next few weeks when a number of people will preach from themes and topics out of the, the book of Revelation, you've got some kind of framework. Some kind of, we've earthed it as much as you can with this book. We'll try and earth this book. You've got a framework and understanding so that you can say, ah, yeah, I sort of see where this book is coming from. Does that sound good? Mm -hmm. yeah. Good. Okay, so let's try and uh, just get some basics in place. The author of this book is believed to be the disciple John, so one of the original 12 disciples. Generally, the commentators will say they think he's probably the last of the 12 still alive. All the others, it's thought, have been martyred by this time. And uh, John is on exile on the Isle of Patmos, which is quite near Turkey, because he has been witnessing uh, for Christ. And uh, Patmos is like, um, it's like, what's that American prison uh, on the island? Alcatraz. Very similar to Alcatraz, modern day Alcatraz. Uh, Patmos is like an old, uh, the Romans have been using it as a quarry. And that's where they put all their political, their difficult prisoners. They put them on Patmos, and that's where they put John. It's a nasty, nasty place. The book, the book is also written in a style or a genre that has not been used for the last 1,800 years. The apocalyptic style of writing just, just fell out of use. And to be honest, I can see why. Um, it's uh, very, very symbolic very heavy on, you know, things having meanings, and you've got to kind of work out what the meanings are. I assume that the original, right, um, uh, the original audience would have understood an awful lot more than we have nearly 2,000 years later. But because it's this style of writing, it is very bizarre to us. I heard somebody say it would be, if you go back 500 years and took someone out of the Amazon rainforest and said, let's go to a very British 
um, what are those uh, shows we put on at Christmas? Uh, pantomime. Come to a British pantomime. Yeah. Someone who'd never been to the theatre before. And they would say, what's this? Why are we all in this building? And what's these lights? And why are men dressed up as women? And why does buttons keep popping up? And why are people shouting? You know, it would just be bizarre. And that's kind of what we're presented with, something that's totally outside of our kind of comfort zone. So I think one of the things we need to try and do then with this book is we've got to work something out. This is what you do with books of the Bible. You've got to try and work out what is the original author, John, trying to communicate to the original audience. It's where you start with any book of the Bible. Before you start to extrapolate and say, oh, it means this and this and this for today, what you do is you find out what, is it, what does it mean in the original? What was John uh, trying to communicate? And I would suggest, in order for us to understand that, we need to understand some history. And we need to understand the historical context into which this book is delivered. That's really key, I think, for understanding it. So I'm going to do some history with you. So this book was either written, it's believed, in the AD 60s. So that's under the, the, the reign of Nero, the, the dreaded Emperor Nero, or it was uh, during AD 80, uh, the, the AD 80s and early 90s, under the reign of another uh, uh, Roman emperor called Domitian. Here they are, these two dreadful men. And uh, both of these emperors have the very dubious reputation for persecuting Christians. And um, <clears throat> uh, frankly, a lot of the Roman emperors did that. And um, there is perhaps historically a little bit more evidence for uh, Nero than Domitian, but uh, many, many would argue with that. So if we start to look at Nero, we see that his persecution of Christians begins in AD 64 when Rome, a quarter of the city of Rome, is burnt down. Rome is the largest city in the world at this time. It's about a million people, massive by ancient world standards, and a quarter of it burns down. And there is a hue and cry amongst the citizens of Rome. And they are furious. And they start to point the finger at Nero. And if you pardon the pun, Nero is really feeling the heat. And he begins to think, I've got to find a scapegoat here. So he says, I know what I'll do. I will blame the Christians. So he points to the Christians and he says it's all their fault. Now that's a much easier sell than it might sound. And it's easier because the ancient world believed in many gods. They were pantheists, believed in many gods. But as Christians, we are monotheists, aren't we? We believe in one God. Yes, yeah. yeah, good. I'm just checking, make sure you, you believe that. Now, if you are a pantheist in the, at the turn of the, uh, the, the millennium, and you are a, uh, from a Roman and, and Greek background, having monotheists among you is bad news. Because you think like this. Your gods, you have, of which you have many, are very immature. They are uh, angry and aggressive and vindictive. And if you don't pay them attention, they will visit you with wrath and destruction. 
So you can have your favourites, that's all right, but you're, occasionally you do have to say, yeah, we honour you all. So, well done, lads, thank you. And here were these Christians now, growing in number in Rome, who said, no, no, we don't believe that, we just believe in one God, and that's the only God we will worship. So the pantheists are nervous around the Christians, because they're thinking, they are, it's what they are doing is poking the gods with a stick, saying, we're ignoring all of you. So they're inviting trouble on the community of Rome. That's how the pantheists think. So when there's a great big fire in AD 64, Nero was able to turn around and say, well, you know, it's those Christians, those monotheists. That's why the gods have visited this fire upon us. And then from that point on, that unleashes a wave of persecution. The first really large wave of persecution crashes over the Christian community in Rome. And there is mass death at this point. And we, you will know, I'm sure, that many Christians were thrown to the lions. Some were dressed up in animal skins and torn apart. Uh, Nero was just, is just a sick man. He decided that it would be a good idea to take some Christians, to dip them in oil, to crucify them, and set them alight, and use them as candles so that he could walk around in his garden at night. This man was just... And being a Christian was enough. For, from AD 64, about the next seven years, being a Christian was enough to get yourself arrested and probably killed. Now, there's something else I need to tell you in terms of background history here. Uh, by this time, something uh, has been introduced called the imperial cult or emperor worship. Now, this is important. And this had been introduced because Roman emperors kept getting killed. Some, some of them only lasted a few months before they were, they had, they were locked. Because basically, people wanted their job. You are you know, the most powerful person in this massive empire. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a bit of that. So the emperors came up with this idea that if they declare themselves to be a god, or a son of god, is how they put it, um, people were going to think twice about killing them. Because, you know, it's really not good form to kill a god. Because that will upset all the other gods, and then they'll be on to you. So they thought, politically, this is a good move. We will declare ourselves to be sons of god, a god, and therefore we will protect ourselves. Well, this move begins to grow. It starts under Julius, Julius Caesar. It grows under him, and then under the next one, Augustus, and then under Caligula. So by the time of Nero, this is a thing. This is a real thing. And it grows and grows. So by the time of Domitian, it is a massive thing. And it meant that the Roman citizens, by this time, each year, had to present themselves before a bust or an altar of the Caesar, and they had to say these words, Caesar is Lord. And then they had to take some, um, uh, some incense and throw it in the altar fire, and that would burn, and that would be like the prayers going up to heaven. And if you did not do that, death was the likely outcome. And of course, what that meant was that many, many Christians were not prepared to do it. No, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And there was a wave of persecution. In fact, that was a mechanism that was used for many, many centuries throughout the Roman Empire uh, to release um, persecution. 
Now, all of that is important for our understanding of the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation is thought to have been written right at the beginning, or maybe even during, one of these intense periods of persecution that was happening in the Roman Empire. So this book suddenly appears. And you get very much see that with, even with, as Jesus is speaking in chapters 2 and 3. He, he dictates some letters. And even in the letters, he says to a couple of the churches, you're about to face huge persecution. Now, one commentator I was uh, listening to described the book of Revelation like this. He said, it is like a manual for martyrdom. It's a manual for martyrdom. To prepare people to be willing to die for their faith by remaining faithful to Jesus, come what may. Whatever you face, stick with him. He said it was designed to provoke hope and holiness in the midst of the most extreme difficulty and persecution. And actually, that's what this book does. He, he was speaking in the 1980s, this guy, and I was just listening to some of his um, videos, and he was talking about China as well, and he just said, you know, uh, in this country where there isn't much persecution, we don't value the book of Revelation hugely. It's a bit of a thing, it's a bit odd. But he said, go to China, they love it. Because they understand persecution. And they, they understand why it's so valuable. And I think once you start to think about the book of Revelation like this, with this sort of understanding, it really helps you to get a grip about what this book is about and what it speaks into. So one of the things that um, I think we need to do then is this. We're going to have to pretend, unfortunately, this can't happen. But imagine this church was lifted up and we were transported back all those years and we land in the time of Emperor Nero. And Rome has just burnt down. And what suddenly started to happen is that some of you have been arrested. Some of us have been killed. All the elders are dead by this time. Sorry, Ian. <laughs> All the elders are dead. Some of us have been killed. Many of you have had your houses taken away from you and all your wealth removed. You are now impoverished because you have said, no, Jesus is Lord. Imagine that's happening. Now, what's going to be going on within you and within us? Well, we're going to be crying out at this point, aren't we? We're going to be saying, God, come on, where are you? Why is this happening? Why don't you just stop all this? Why don't you return right now? That's a good idea. Return right now and then, and then you can bring everything to an end. Or you might say, where's justice in all this? This isn't fair. It's not right that my home has been taken away. And you're going to be frightened. Because it could be a knock on your door this afternoon. Going home for Sunday lunch, you get arrested. I mean, that's not what you're bargaining for. This book speaks into a people who are thinking and are feeling like that. It speaks powerfully uh, into that. So let's imagine then we know the Apostle John. And then suddenly... We're in AD 64, 65, and this terrible persecution is crashing over us. And then suddenly somebody says, John has seen a vision. Now, we know John, we trust him, we know he's an apostle. And this book of Revelation is presented to us for the first time. 
And somebody stands up here and says, look, I've got this letter from John. It's an extraordinary letter. I'm going to start to read it to you. And he starts to read it. What do we see? Well, we're going to see Jesus in chapter 1. Exalted and powerful. We're going to see Jesus like we have never seen before. John is used to a relationship with Jesus that he, he lent against Jesus. And they were buddies. They were friends. John is about to see Jesus in a way that makes him fall on the ground as though he is dead in terror at who he sees. He sees awesome Jesus. He says his eyes are like fire. He says his voice is like the sound of many waters. And out of his mouth comes the two-edged sword. Such, such is the power of what he says. He is exalted and powerful. And suddenly you think, this is way more wonderful than any Roman emperor. Far more exalted. Wow, the Roman emperor, who we all know is not a god, but is pretending that he is. This is the real God. This is real Jesus. Exalted and powerful. And in that same chapter, we're reminded that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. There we go, Alpha and Omega. At the beginning and the end. Now, we love to sing that song, don't we? Alpha and Omega. That's all about, in a context of suffering, that was produced. And you need to know that he is the beginning and the end. You need to know that this suffering that you will come to an end. You need to know that God Almighty is sovereign uh, over all of this. He knows it all. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And then we move from chapter 1 into chapters 2 and 3. And Jesus writes letters to his uh, churches, seven churches. And he judges his churches. And suddenly you realise as you read or hear what's going on in chapters 2 and 3, that it's Jesus who judges his church, not Rome, not the emperors, not these pantheists who are looking down their nose at the, at the monotheists of these Christians. No, it's Jesus is the true judge. Suddenly, a different perspective has been brought. And then we move to chapters 4 and 5. And as I've said before, we see into the throne room of worship in heaven. Incredible, incredible uh, thing. And we see something of the worship and the wonder of being in God's presence. In fact, worship is a theme that bursts all the way through the book of Revelation. It's a bit like a, you know, a geezer that just doesn't do anything for a while. And then something goes boom! And then it goes quiet again. Well, worship's like that. Uh, we see uh, in, the, in the throne room of heaven and suddenly we get elders falling on their face, casting their crowns before the living God, just in full worship. And then that all goes quiet for a bit and we see a few other things. Then suddenly there are angels that burst out and say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. And then suddenly they, you know, there's another explosion of worship and it goes quiet. We get all these weird images. And then suddenly it says multitudes are worshipping. Worship is a really important theme in this book. And then you get to the end of chapter 5, and then for the next 12 chapters, we get all these really weird images, which you'd have to read and remind yourself of what they are. But they are weird. And what I take from those 12 chapters and all this weirdness is this. God knows about every evil force and evil power and evil plan that is at work on the face of the earth. He sees it, he knows it, he understands it completely, and he calls it out for what it is. <coughs> Nothing is hidden. And then um, 
What else do we see in those chapters? Well, we see an answer to this question is why? Where's the justice in this? Because we have martyrs, people who have already died for the name of Jesus. And it says they are crying out to God, saying, God, how long? How long? And God speaks to them and says, not yet. He's urging patience on those. That will not come because more, actually more people have to die first. God is speaking into the issue of martyrdom. If we'd seen a bunch of our friends die for Christ, that is a question we would be asking. And here is God answering it, speaking powerfully in that time. Now the other thing that God, I believe, knew was that those who are suffering needed encouragement to persevere. You would, wouldn't you? We would need encouragement to persevere. And we see that explicitly given in chapters 13 and 14 with this phrase. It says this, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. It's repeated in chapters in 13 and 14. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Sometimes Jesus just says this, you're going to have to suck it up and deal with it. And keep pressing on. Don't abandon my name. Keep worshipping me. Keep pressing in. I know it's hard, but keep going. Keep going. Sometimes we need to hear that as a church. I know it's hard, but keep going. So that's chapters 13 and 14. And then, oh boy, there's so many themes. There's another theme now that comes in. Because in amongst all this evil stuff that's happening, we see God pouring out his judgment on the earth. So time will come when God will say, I will pour out my judgment on the earth. Now, this is a bit controversial, isn't it? Because we like to hear about God loving us, being kind, gentle. Yet, God is a God of justice, which means judgment has to come. And there will be a right time for the judgment of God. And we see that poured out by even here, these seven bowls. This is justice being poured out. What happens is one gets poured out and then there's a gap. It's like God is saying, I poured one out, let's see he'll repent. He's wanting repentance to come. Even in the midst of judgment and justice, he said, come on, come on, repent so I don't have to pour this out on you. So I see, I see the mercy of God in the, in the midst of all this judgment. There's a lot here, isn't there? I'm sorry about this. So as suffering Christians then, what else do we see? What else do we see that's going to encourage us in this book? Well, we see this, that God will eventually bring things to an end. The earth that we live on today will eventually come to an end. It will not, was never designed to last forever. We see the devil defeated. Imagine a world without the devil. Devil's gone. He has been, the Bible says, thrown into the lake of fire. Fierce justice has been brought to the evil one. And what else do we see in the last couple of chapters? Well, we see a judgment day for all of humanity. We will all one day stand before the throne of God and we will be judged. And then we will see a new heaven and a new earth. And it's described, it's just wonderful the way it's described, it's beautiful. It's described bedecked with jewels. It's just, it's tenderly, beautifully created. 
and we see this new heaven and this new earth. Interestingly, it says in the context of this, there will be no more death or suffering or pain. What's the context? Terrible suffering. God is saying, remember, one day there's going to be a new heaven. There'll be no more suffering, no more pain, no more Nero trying to burn you alive. He will have gone. And then in that uh, chapter 21, I think it is, we see a day when God will then restore us to full intimate relationship with him. It says he will walk with us and we will walk with him. There's going to be intimate connection, friendship, relationship. Actually, what we're seeing there is perfection. We're seeing something that is perfect. And that's where God's going to bring us. Perfect. In fact, it even says there's not going to be a sun or a moon anymore. We're not going to have light like we have light here. The Bible says the light that we will have will come from him. So what that means is we will live constantly in the light of God's glory. Of his very presence will be the light around us. (laughs) Yeah, we're right at the edge of being able to understand that, aren't we? What is that? Well, I don't know, but it's really good. Just wonderful. And then we come to the last book, uh, sorry, the last chapter of the book of Revelation. And it ends with the words of Jesus when he says, I am coming and I am coming soon. That's the last chapter. That's the last thing that's said in the Bible. Jesus says, I am coming back. I am coming back soon. And I want to say to you, I believe to live healthily as a Christian, because this is what I see in the New Testament. We see Paul teaching people he is going to return. I believe to to live healthily as Christians, we have to know that Jesus could be coming back soon. You have to live with that, walk with that in your heart every day. Because it stops you settling here. You have to remember that the Bible says we are strangers and aliens in this world. This is like a foreign land we're going through at the moment. This is not our home. We have an eternal home that I've just tried to describe. This is a home, guys. One day we're going to be home. We're going to be home. Wonderful. Can't wait. And that's uh, what God has for us. I believe this book is designed very much to, to get the eyes of every single believer off the here and now. However difficult or however good it is, it's designed to say, no, no, get your eyes off the, "Mm, you know, what's happening now? Oh, dear, I don't like the suffering. I don't like this. And that's not good. And my job isn't going well. It's designed to get your eyes off that to say, come on, get them up onto these big things of God. That one day there will be a new heaven and earth. One day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And we're not going to be bothered about whether we got the promotion then. We're really not. Did I get the bigger house? Well, that's a big deal for me. No, God, I'm before you. This is the stuff that matters. And interestingly, this is what John is drawing the attention of the suffering believers to. Saying, look, even this is nothing. Paul described his suffering as momentary light affliction. He was being shipwrecked and beaten. That's light compared to what I will know in his presence. So guys, 
book of Revelation is designed to help us get our eyes where they should be. Get our eyes off the here and now and make sure that we continue pushing into the right path. So there you go. There you go. That's my overview of the book of Revelation. I'm going to leave you though with three questions if I may. First one is this, and maybe you're either here or maybe you're watching on, um, on video, you're watching on our YouTube channel. I've got to ask you this, do you know this Jesus who is going to return? Do you know this Jesus who's coming back, who's going to judge you one day? I can't get around this, you know. The truth is we are all sinful and you need the forgiveness of God. And if you haven't got the forgiveness of God, your outlook is deeply bleak. But if you have, it's wonderful. That's what the Bible teaches us. Do you know this Jesus? Let me urge you with all my heart. Get to know him if you do not know him. Before it's too late. The Bible says eventually time will run out and there will be a judgment day. You've got to do your business before then. Let me urge you to do that. Second question is a lot easier. When did you last read the book of Revelation? Can I encourage you to read it? It's going to be really helpful over the next few weeks as we're going through our preaching series. If you have read it and you've got some kind of grasp, you may well need, in fact, I would recommend you read it with a commentary. Uh, and I would I'd recommend, if you want something nice uh, and kind of easy to listen to, Andrew Wilson has done a a preaching series from King's Catford. If you go onto their website, King's Catford Church, um, just called Revelation, it was done in 2018. It's 12 preaches, he's done about half of them. It's the way our worship tied up, we've got read a poem just to finish. really encourage you to do that. Last question is this. How much do you think about what is to come? How much do you think about what is to come? And how much do you only think about today or tomorrow? How much do you think about Judgment Day? How much do you think about eternity versus the next few decades? See, I believe as Christians, we've got to get that perspective right. Otherwise, we go a bit wrong. Because we want to keep our money here and spend it, and, you know. It's about comfort now. And we... Look, we all like a bit of comfort. But, but the focus of scripture is eternity. How much do you think about what is to come? And how much do you not? Let's pray. And then we'll draw things to a close. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenging bits as well as the bits when you, you just tell us how much you love us. Father, I thank you that... <clears throat> This is in your word, and it is the final uh, book of your Bible for a reason. I thank you, Father, that you speak so powerfully, even into seasons when we are suffering, and even when there's persecution. Father, I ask you to help us to hear your word, Lord, and to let it go into our heart and to change us and affect us. So, Holy Spirit, I pray, help us to be people that are thinking about the return of Christ. Help us to think about judgment day. Help us to think about eternal matters and not just the here and now. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're done.